Hello, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Ethics of Research. My guest today is a very good colleague of mine who researches right-wing extremism in the online space. I recently co-authored a paper with him and he graciously volunteered his time to provide me with an interview to help other young researchers interested in studying this topic. Before we begin, I would like to provide you with a bit more introduction about him. Brandon Rigato is a PhD candidate in Communication Studies in the School of Journalism and Communication at Carleton University. His research focuses on right-wing extremism, radicalization, and social movements. He is a senior research assistant with the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council supported project called Populist Publics, Memory, Populism, and Misinformation in the Canadian Social Mediascape. Rigado is also a co-author of the 60 Days of PVE campaign, Lessons on Organizing an Online Peer-to-Peer Counter-Radicalization Program, which was published in Journal for De-Radicalization in the fall of 2017. Our current paper is under review, so we will keep that suspense till it gets accepted. Here is our conversation. I hope you'll enjoy it. Thank you so much, Brandon, for agreeing to provide me this interview, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Aden. Great to be here. So let's start by telling the readers a little bit more about your work. So tell me, what is your PhD research on and how did you get interested in the topic? Yeah, so my research topic, it was I was originally studying in my MA uh, riots and sort of the ongoing justifications for them during my MA. And uh, that that was just what I've sort of applied to the PhD program with because I viewed it as a communications process, which uh, is my major. And uh, in 2018, it was a course I was taking with uh, Marlena Lim at Carleton. And uh, we were talking about Sons of Odin in class. And then I was like, hmm, why don't I just Facebook and see where, you know, uh, Facebook search them rather. And uh, I was just genuinely shocked by everything that I saw in there and how open it was. The first time I saw it, it was like Sons of Odin, Calgary or something. I, I can't recall. Um, it, it was just shocking to me that it was such open discussions of hatred that I was witnessing. And I was naively um, certain that this was something that was overlooked by moderators at the time. So that's how out of the loop I was back in 2018. And, uh, you know, uh, then I started searching more and more of it, mapping these things out. And still to this day, unfortunately, there's plenty of harmful content out there. And uh, that's sort of how my interest veered from studying uh, riots to the alt-right or far-right or whatever moniker you prefer. So in terms of once you came across this and you thought, okay, I want to research it, how, how did you decide on your research methods? And are you personally a fan of qualitative, quantitative, or do you not have a preference? How did you make, make that decision? Yeah, so I actually use a few um, uh, methods in my dissertation. So when Facebook allowed people to access their API, I was using apps, um, what was it called? NetViz, I believe it was called. And what that allowed you to do was actually see the social networks that were formed between Facebook groups, right? And Facebook groups are a function. Most of us are a part of them if you're on Facebook, right? Like, um, you know, if you're interested in like 
crafts or uh, Lord of the Rings or whatever sort of fandoms you can follow these things. And uh, unfortunately, these Facebook groups were uh, a prime home for far right individuals as well. But using these basic sort of uh, technological apps that were available to any user, uh, I was able to map connections between them. So that to me was more of a, I guess it is in a way qualitative uh, thing because I can sit there and clearly pin it out. Um, so th that was interesting just to show networks. But networks themselves, uh, they're great, but I was more interested in um, substance within those networks. So then I looked further at other apps that could actually pull messages from Facebook. Um, and I came across, I think it was Netlytic. So NetViz and Netlytic, okay? A lot of nets here. And uh, Netlytic could just, like every 15 minutes, I believe it was, it would scrape a page and it would compile every new post to an Excel sheet for you. Um, and with that, it was at first, it was like, hey, do I want to do a content analysis or a frame analysis. And I think both of those, like it kind of is a meeting ground content analysis for uh, qualitative and quantitative, because I do like being able to say, oh, this many percentage of posts did this, right? Because, you know, if you're ever presenting to like a government audience, they want numbers. So it was useful for that, as opposed to me talking about the themes about, okay, great, but give me some numbers here. And it's like, okay, let's, <laughs> let's cover everything. And uh, that's basically what I did. So um, I, I use multiple methods. And part of my approach is looking at what triggers conversations within those Facebook groups from these people. And what I did was I sort of cherry picked news events was what I call them. Uh, things like terrorist attacks that occurred during my collection period, just to see what people were discussing during that time and, and what frames are being used to uh, situate the events as they unfolded. Sorry, I'm going to ramble longer. <laughs> no, no, that's very interesting. So because you were talking about, you know, collecting this data online, um, I'm wondering if um, you did that after getting your ethics approval or was it even before in the exploratory stage? Um, because it was, as you said, Facebook just allowed people to have access to the API. So was it public information or did you already had to do an ethics approval before doing that? Well, the thing that's interesting about my data is it's all fair use, I think is the term they use. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't use any deception and I don't go to private groups. So everything I accessed was public knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, so I was setting up things for research assistant jobs uh, prior to my own that would actually actively track these things. Um, there's an Align Media Lab out of uh, Carleton, also run by Dr. Merlina Lim and uh, Dr. Gada Al-Rashid. Let's mm -hmm. name drop a few friends and yeah. mentors here. Definitely. Um, <laughs> um, and I was collecting data for them. However, you because it was open access, the ethics boards don't require any sort of approval for that kind of research, which, um, you know, as I unfold in my own dissertation, I, I don't agree with entirely, even though I'm studying people that um, are, you know, unsavory for lack of a better term. I think that they should be afforded some sort of privacy because I don't want to become an 
an exploitative person that just yeah. names and shames. Yeah, um, which which I find surprising because I would assume that even um, you know in that because I remember um, when I was doing my research, I had a discussion with one of um, uh, the deans of my ethics board at University of Toronto, and they were mentioning that. With social media, I know that it is public information, but you still need to consider, does this person have a reasonable expectation of privacy? Like, do they have a private account, right? Then that would be, they have a reasonable expectation of privacy and things like that. So how was the ethics application like then? Like, I'm sure you filled out one, one right? And yes. if you did, what were the things that you still had to tell your ethics board about that this, this is what I'll do or the, the precautions I'll take? Well, one thing I did was um, it, it, there was a back and forth, as there always is with mm-hmm. ethics boards, um, but it definitely wasn't as onerous as your process was. <laughs> I know that for sure. Um, I did. I mentioned to them that I right away did not collect usernames or personal names. Okay. So if somebody asked me today, oh, what what's the name of the person that you quote here? I can't tell you. I don't have it anymore. I, I okay. didn't want it. And um, that's my way of protecting these strangers that I've never met. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, I think that it sometimes overlooks the broader problem when we focus on individuals in these yeah. situations. You know, that, that's always been my sense. Uh, these aren't like a few bad apples, right? It's a, it's a community. So you can let your imagination run wild with who these people are, as opposed to me saying like, Oh, person A said this person B said this. It's, Mm -hmm. it's a collection of quotes. Um, What else did I want to say? Yeah. But that's basically it. I I just, I, I make sure that I've protected them. Um, I only collect from public uh, places and and that that's sort of how I've situated myself here. Mm -hmm. The questions. Oh, sorry, please. No, no, no. Finish your thought. You can. Yeah, no, I, the, the main question that they had was, um, am I going into private spaces? Will I be contacting them or have I contacted them? And the answer is no, I haven't contacted them. I think that it would be borderline impossible for me to do so now because I don't have their names. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the pages that I study, or a few of them anyhow, have been taken down, like the three percenters yeah. are a terrorist group now, or yeah. a terrorist entity. I don't know yeah. how the government frames it um but yeah i that's about it so you just mentioned before um that you know there were some things that you um were thinking that you know even though these are very unsavory characters there's still some protections for privacy that should be provided to them you know regardless so what would what would you change in the way the research ethics works now what would you add um to kind of make it more you know, an ethical way of doing research, um, even if it is on something like right-wing extremism. Yeah, well, one thing, and I haven't, I'm not, you know, um, casting judgment on anyone that does this, Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of research that I've come across that's comfortable naming and um, shaming, let's call it. Yeah. I've always wondered what Okay, if it's a mainstream figure, like somebody that's, um, you know, actively, let's call them a propagandist, right? Someone like a Gavin McGinnis, let's say, mm-hmm. if you want to name and shame him, I would be like, okay, that makes sense. That's a figurehead of a group. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of individuals that um, aren't in these violent groups that just have like problematic views. And I've always struggled with that 
personally as to why it would make sense to name and shame them. I, I don't know why I have this uh, reservation, um, but when I see it, it sometimes feels like it's in bad taste to me because mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know what you will accomplish if you're outing somebody for these views. Uh, not even outing, that's a wrong word, mm-hmm. you know. Um, <laughs> but trying to shame them in a way it's always felt odd to me from a researcher point of view mm-hmm. and you know that's just me openly expressing my uh, yeah thoughts. no i think i would agree and also because what i found was that when a lot of i was t- wanted to talk to these people this was number one of their concerns that you know we are worried not just for themselves but also you know sometimes they have kids and sometimes they have families and you know if if the person's private views become public, then, you know, it's not just them, you know, they sometimes feel that, you know, what if their extended family members are getting threatened? And I would agree that's definitely an ethical dilemma, um, you know, because like you were saying, what we are researching is the views and trying to understand the problem, not just individual people. So then this brings exactly. me to the next point, which is then um, what were some of the ethical dilemmas that you didn't anticipate? before you start your research but then they came up once you started researching and started writing and even started presenting it in different forms yeah it's you know it's so bizarre to admit but there's this human aspect that often gets overlooked yeah i've i and i don't want to come across as an apologist but when you see these people they have families and there's a human aspect to them right not just this nasty tweet right Mm -hmm. and and i can despise what they think and what they view but oftentimes there's kids involved yeah when you see that it's very it's a it's emotionally confusing yeah um, and i know you and i have chatted about this um yeah it, it's really hard to sort of make sense of something you actively dislike and despise on the one hand which are like these racist bigoted views but then you see that this person is also a support system for kids uh you know they're I, I, and i've i've often struggled with that and that probably goes to my previous point of the naming and the shaming thing because it's like okay well if they get fired or something kids are gonna suffer and then there's other long-term social ills that can spiral and mm-hmm. is that a step we think is worthwhile yeah. i don't know right and that that's all i would ask people to consider before doing something like that yeah exactly and i think this is difficult coming back to the idea because it's not that like you were saying, it's not about apologizing for these people, but it's the fact that you as a researcher are also a human being. And being a compassionate or em- empathetic person is like, you, means you're a good human being, you know, <laughs> like you're trying to kind of understand what the other side is coming from. And you also, when you're presenting, you want to be clear that I do not condone, I do not apologize, I do not justify their views in any way. It's just some feelings I had, you know, while I was in the field because I'm a human being and, you know, I'm talking to other human beings. So unless I was a robot with completely devoid of feeling anything, it's very difficult, right, to just be like, oh, exactly. objectively neutral. Yeah. Like I see them doing things like going for walks with their kids or yeah. fishing. It's like, OK, these are things I've done. We're not, you know, on some level, there's a human being there. And uh, I just I. I think that's probably the greatest struggle because 
I sometimes envy the people that can just write them off. It's like, yeah. you're a terrible person. It looks like it's a lot easier for yeah. those researchers, but being honest, that are just like, yeah, you're, you're a terrible person and I don't have to care about you. And it's like, ah, I don't know. I have too much of a conscience, I guess. I'm going to work at chipping away at it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but then this also means that I'm sure sometimes the views are quite terrible and you know maybe sometimes they're talking about things that you might think that well that impacts my friends or my family right you know it's very hateful so then in that case how do you care about your own well-being you know your own mental health when you're reading these hateful after hateful views for your research and at the same time you know that could also be chipping away at your sanity a little bit that we have people in society who think like that well my sanity has been chipped away at for decades prior to this work so <laughs> i'm not concerned about that um uh no it is it's very weird because you know i come from a multi-religious household and although i'm i'm christian you know my my partner isn't she's a uh, a Muslim from Turkey so yeah. that uh, it's a prime target for some of these yeah. groups especially historically they're not happy about uh, you know the Ottoman Empire and things like that get drawn upon in my work and it's like oh this is it's it's eerie at times yeah. um, you know like Terence I'm pretty sure was going off about the Ottoman Empire taking over the Constantinople it's like wow how do you think about these things but um in that case it, it I have a view that if they're uttering threats it's an RCMP matter and I if I come across it I happily report it mm-hmm. if there's just hateful views being expressed it's unfortunate but I think that's allowed in Canada right yeah. you're, you're allowed to have problematic views and Unless they're saying, oh, I want to go out and harm X, Y, or Z, or I'm planning on doing this. As a researcher, it's kind of like, you're allowed to have these problematic views. Um, It's not my job to police thoughts in that Mm -hmm. arena. Just try to interpret them. And that's the stance I've taken. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what helps you understand them, right, to some extent, because you need access to the views to then analyze that oh this is a section of society that thinks like that right so in that way then even though you mentioned like you don't contact these people you work mostly with publicly available information but have you ever been concerned about your safety maybe you've written something maybe you've presented something in a public forum where you know maybe somebody from these groups or their sympathizers Take, took offense to that or or maybe from the other side too maybe if you face criticism that you know why are you researching this information in the first place or why are you giving more view time your time to mm-hmm. view so have you faced any criticism and on from either side or have you ever been concerned about your own safety well i i now am uh, with a group called the populist publics uh run by dr uh Jen Evans and uh, uh, Dr. Sandra Robinson out of Carleton. Mm-hmm. And my real fear is for the RAs, the other yeah. RAs on the team, because, uh, you know, they they do, I'm like the lead RA. So part of my job is making sure that they're not um, stepping and venturing into dangerous territory. So majority of my fears are for them um, yeah. because it's kind of like, okay, what would I do if they went after 
these younger students that are more prolific in writing and blogging than I am. Yeah. And that's my real concern. Um, uh, that's really occupied my mind of late. And uh, Dr. Sandra Robinson in particular is trying to set up um, something in universities across Canada wide to protect researchers should they become the target of something like a Gamergate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, th- that's really where my current fears are is what if they go after someone? Um, I don't I don't have a public face. Um, my Twitter, I don't tweet. I don't share much in the way of opinion pieces. I've had one. Um, I haven't received any feedback for it. Uh, and I do believe on some level that that probably is fear-based um, because I don't want to actively attract negative attention mm-hmm. because it's not just me that'll be getting targeted. Yeah. Right. I, I have family. Like if it was, if I could guarantee that they would only send me nasty emails, I would be open to it. Like, okay, that's fine. Right. Uh, we, I have students. Okay. I know what negative emails sound like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, this I is for all that. of you undergraduate students who give us negative evaluation on our team. Yeah. I read them and they hurt my feelings. But, <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, if I could guarantee that, then I would be probably, probably more uh, vocal at times, but it's still also not my personality to be chiming in on every little thing. But uh, yeah, so not too afraid for myself, but younger undergrads and MA students that are venturing into this world, I would hate in my, my greatest fear would be uh, for them to be put off of studying this stuff because of a negative experience like that. So that's my real greatest fear is that they would be bullied out of it. Yeah. So then what advice would you give to them, right? To early career graduate students who are starting their research in the online space. And it could be extremism of any kind, right? They could be studying more religious oriented extremism. Um, so no, what, would, what would you advise them as they start out on their journey? Well, my advice would be depending on your methods. Uh, so if you're wanting to interview, I would say talk to Auden. Uh, because <laughs> I, I haven't done any of that, right? So uh, I can give you a list of uh, digital tools to disguise your identity. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going into sketchy platforms, get a fake email, Proton Mail, mm-hmm. get a fake account use VPNs, set yourself to being in a country as far away, put it in the States even, who cares, right? Just make sure you're not in Canada. Yeah. Um, try to disguise your visual, digital footprint as much as possible because mm-hmm. uh, these people are tech savvy. If they get a hold of you, they will and can make your life, you know, hellish, right? And the Gamergate should be reviewed by anyone wanting to um, get into this world that there are very real consequences mm-hmm. to your personal life for venturing into this, especially if you tick the boxes of, you know, a uh, uh, person of color, you know, uh, all these sort of other identities that can be used against you, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, that those are real concerns to consider. Yeah, very practical advice. Thanks, Brandon. So now we're coming towards the end of the podcast. So Maybe our readers want to know what are your future plans? What can you do, you know, with this type of work that you've been doing, this kind of research? What are you planning to do after you graduate? 
Oh, yeah. Any sort of researching job. That's my real goal is as long as I can continue researching in some capacity. Okay. Uh, that's honestly my goal. Maybe there's a postdoc in my future. Um, we'll see. We'll see how how uh, intimidating the defense goes. <laughs> you know, I might not have any anything left in the tank to keep going, but I, as long as I can keep researching and studying stuff at some capacity, yeah, that's that's where I'll be. And uh, that's probably not an exciting answer, but it's it's yeah, but, how I'm coping. <laughs> but for a researcher, it is, right? If you love doing research, then that's the kind of work you want to do. Yeah, so, I want to write more papers with Auden and Gada. That's yes. that's that's my goal. Exactly. And we'll be world famous uh, researchers on right-wing extremism. <laughs> exactly. So where can people find you? Do you have a website, a social media account? If students want to connect with you to get more information about your research, your work, how can they get in contact with you? Yeah, uh, email me anytime or I'm on Twitter. Uh, yeah, so Twitter and email. So it's Brandon Regato at cmail.carlton.ca. It's a terrible email address, but it's mine. Um, <laughs> uh, reach out to Auden and anybody that has any questions or, you know, anything I can help with, I'm more than happy to because uh, coming up as an undergrad and an MA student, I realize how helpful uh, students that are, you know, further down the process can uh, help. So any any questions, please reach out. I'd be more than happy to chat with you. Yeah, and I can I can attest. Brandon is really helpful even to me in my work, and you know is always kind, is always responding to whatever concerns you have. And I'll also add your email and Twitter information in the show notes, so you can also get that information from there. Thank you so much, Brandon. It was Thank a pleasure you, as always. And now I know so much more about your work as well, because it is in there's there is some overlap with my work, which is interviewing people offline. But you know, there is certainly something that are very specific to online space. So I'm glad that we got to chat and I hope this will be a useful episode for our students. Any final parting words? Uh, just thank you so much for having me out in and uh if you ever need a guest host, a co-host, I'm here. I always enjoy chatting with you. Yes, I will take you up on that. <laughs> thank you so much, Brandon. And thank you for the rest of you. I hope you enjoy this episode and I will see you next time with another guest. Take care and bye, everyone. <laughs>